and welcome back to Murder, Lies and Everything in Between, a true crime podcast with me, Jess, and my husband, Atty. Hi, guys. Hope you've all had a good couple of weeks. Um, we've actually had a good couple of weeks, I think. Um, today, we've had a really nice chilled out day off, haven't we, Atty? It's been all right today, yeah. Yeah, um, this was the second attempt at recording this. Um, we had a little bit of issues, didn't we, with noisy neighbours? Yeah. So this is the second attempt at recording. <laughs> So, <laughs> I was a bit stressed out. I went, do you know what? Fuck this. No, we'll do it later. <laughs> she gets stressed easily, by the way, guys. You probably already know that. <laughs> stressy pants over there. <laughs> so hopefully there is no rude interruptions in this. Um, so today we are covering another UK case. And I've actually been kind of... Um, I've been kind of attracted to the more UK cases lately. I've been doing quite a lot of them, haven't we, Ali? Yeah. Um, I think it's just because there's so many cases that have kind of happened in the UK that I've not heard a lot of podcasts cover. So I do like to cover the lesser known cases and the cases that people don't know much about. Um, I think it's also interesting for the listeners to be able to kind of hear the lesser known cases because we all hear about the same kind of ones, the big people that we know, like Ted Bundy, Edmund Kemper, um, all those kind of people. We've heard those all before, you know. It's nice to kind of do... Mix it up a little bit. Yeah, mix yeah. it up a little bit, yeah. Cool. So today we are covering um, a case that actually happened in Surrey. So on the 6th of June, 1992, 18-year-old Katie and her best friend had made plans to go to a local nightclub in the town of Camberley in Surrey called Ragamuffins. <laughs> The worst thing is that's the second time he's <laughs> laughed about that because the first time we recorded, he laughed as well. <laughs> Doesn't get any less funny, no. <laughs> so the main reason for their actual planned night out was so that Katie could blow off some steam. Um, she'd recently broken up with her boyfriend and it was still kind of raw. The relationship breakup was still kind of raw for her. So she wanted to go out and just kind of have a good night and just blow off some steam. So they made their way into Camberley <clears throat> excuse me, with no issues. And they kind of had fun, danced the night away, had a couple of drinks until about 2am when the nightclub closed. Inside the nightclub, though, Katie actually saw her ex-boyfriend, Metu Mustafa. She told him that she still loved him and she actually wanted to marry him. And, you know, she, she was regretting not being in a relationship with him and she still really, really loved him. He, though, had already met somebody else and he'd already began dating a new girl. So he basically just said, look, you know, I'm not interested anymore. I'm with somebody new. And her heart was broken. You know, she was really besotted by this this guy. Yeah, but then why break up in the first place? Well, the thing is, I don't know. I can't find anywhere who broke up with who. So I don't know if she broke up with him or he broke up with her. Right, okay. I'm not sure. Sure it wasn't just drink talking. No, no, I think I don't I don't think it wasn't, but then I don't know. It could have been. But you know, yeah, like she... when you get drunk, you know, I'm like, oh, I love you and I miss you. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're saying, yeah. Drunk um, talk. Yeah, it could be, yeah, it could be drunk talk. I mean, I don't know how drunk she actually was, um, or if she was wasted, or if she was relatively sober. Now, you don't have to go to a nightclub and get drunk, do you? You could be sober. Who doesn't go to a nightclub and don't get drunk? Well, people that don't drink and people that are being the designated driver. Sorry. I'm gonna have to <laughs> <laughs> so... Obviously, the two girls went together to the nightclub, but somehow they both got split up, okay? With one of them driving. No. <laughs> no. So they basically got split up inside of the club. I don't know if it was if it was when Katie was trying, when she was speaking to her ex-boyfriend or what, but they got split up. And Katie ended up basically outside of the nightclub alone, needing a lift home to where she lived. Katie begged her ex-boyfriend if he could take her home because she didn't have a way home that night. But he said he he flat just refused. He said he wouldn't take her home. So this would be the last time that any anyone, though, would see her alive apart from her killer. 7am, the next morning rolled around on the 7th of June and her body was actually found by four schoolboys on the night back from camping. So they'd been camping in their friend's garden overnight and they were walking back home early hours and that's when they found Katie's body. Right. She was half naked. She was placed down a side street in Farnborough, which is about four miles away from where she was last seen in Camberley. That journey, I've had a look on a map and that journey would have took about 22, 23 minutes in a car. 
So it's about four miles, as I said. So it was not, it's not walkable. So she had to have got there somehow. So either a taxi, a lift or something. She got there somehow. She had suffered 29 stab and slash wounds to various parts of her body, including her head, her breasts, her shoulders, her liver, her heart, and even her genitals. The pathologist claimed that the wounds were even inflicted after she was already dead. So once the killer had already killed her, they continued their attack on her. Hampshire police focused on the nightclub as being the potential source for the attack. So they checked CCTV, they spoke to people, and they kind of saw if she maybe met someone outside the club or anything like that. Right. But none of this seemed to actually bring anything. No one seemed to have any information apart from she was outside the nightclub and she asked her ex-boyfriend to take her home. Criminal profilers obviously got involved to see if they could try and pinpoint the suspect, maybe, or who they were even kind of looking at. They had no idea who they were looking for at this point. This would focus towards a male, possibly in his 30s, being with a sexual motive and also a person that was capable of dragging Katie's body down the road to where she was dumped near a cemetery wall. So... I mean, you've, you're going to have to have somebody that's capable of dragging her body that far. This wasn't a small road that they had to carry her, so they had to have enough strength to be able to physically do that. You know, this is an 18-year-old girl. She wasn't small, small, you know? Yeah. She had to have enough strength for that. Unfortunately, though, no leads in finding a suspect would come up, and they just basically run dry at this point. I've had a look and see if I could find anything about why this ran dry so quickly because it kind of sent, seemed to be a non-starter. There didn't seem to be anything. It kind of it was literally like she just dropped off the face of a planet outside the nightclub and just morphed to Farnborough. It was that kind of scenario. There was nothing so in between that. that. So they don't know if they got into a taxi or no. It was five hours. We know it was five hours that she might from... have walked. Four four miles. I mean, she could have possibly. Yeah, no, we've all done. We've all done it. Yeah, four miles. Well, I mean, you're drunk. That... You just came on walking, didn't you? Until yeah. you get home. To be fair, I remember I walked from. I don't even think I could say. I I walked from a neighbouring town to where I used to live, where you know it is, yeah. um, and that is a good distance. And I remember getting halfway, and luckily a taxi driver. I was walking down a pitch black country road middle of the night i think it was like three o'clock in the morning luckily a taxi driver stopped and said do you want to lift back and i was like no no no, i haven't got any money and he went no this is unsafe get in the car and he took me all the way back to where i lived so for free so was it for free yeah it was for free uh... <laughs> <laughs> he took me back to where not to my house but he took me back to the general area um so you know these things do happen but i'll go over in a minute what we know actually happened that night and how she actually got back to Farnborough. Right. So Katie's killer wasn't done at this point. There was no leads. They weren't arrested. He, she wasn't arrested. So they were just going to carry on doing what they were doing. But her killer did wait two years to attack again. So actually, in fact, two years down to the day. So... By the time this all happened, the killer wouldn't be so lucky. The killer was so brazen this time that they did it in front of people where they were very, very easily caught. 13-year-old Anne-Marie Clifford was found bleeding from a wound in her school's bathroom where her attacker had stood over her. She had been stabbed in the lung with a four-inch bladed knife. Her attacker was caught messing with her, passing a knife from hand to hand, smiling. So that typical, like, cocky, yeah, like, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna play with this knife to kind of try and intimidate you. Yeah. She was obviously doing all this before she was interrupted by five students who walked into the bathroom after her. It's very much believed that if these students hadn't have walked into the bathroom, Anne Marie Clifford would be dead. 100 yeah, percent, she would have yeah. been dead yeah she wouldn't have survived Anne marie was rushed to the hospital where thankfully she made a full recovery and she was actually able to tell the police who her attacker was because she actually knew her attacker right 
The students that actually walked in and caught the attacker were also able to identify who that person was in the bathroom and leave right after. As I said previously to you, the person that had killed Katie, they assumed, they profiled this person as being a male in his 30s, someone able to carry out this horrific attack, 29 stab wounds, sexually motivated attack, and carry her body down a, a road. But what they didn't didn't know and what they weren't actually prepared for was that the killer would actually be a 14-year-old girl called Sharon Carr. This is who was named by the victim and who was named by the schoolgirls that walked into the toilets. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't take long for obviously police to track her down. She was a fellow student at Collingwood College Comprehensive School. So they they got her pretty much straight away and she was arrested immediately. They had everything. They didn't even need a confession off her. They had everything they needed. She was caught red-handed. She was caught in the middle of the act by multiple witnesses. They didn't need anything. They could just pursue criminal charges for the attack straight away. It turned out that Sharon Carr had actually lured Anne-Marie into the toilets on the premise of helping her find a one-pound coin that she'd apparently dropped on the floor. Anne-Marie was terrified of Sharon, along with a lot of other people that were, and she didn't feel she could say no. So she went ahead and followed her into the bathroom to help her find it, and that's when Sharon attacked her and stabbed her in the lung. She was obviously charged for this, and she was found guilty with absolutely no hesitation. She was sentenced to two years in custody and she was held in various psychiatric units. But following this and whilst in these psychiatric units, she actually assaulted female members of staff and she actually racked up more assault charges for this. So they did pursue charges for those attacks on members of staff. Her behaviour, in fact, was so bad and unmanageable that they felt she was better being managed at Bullwood Hall in Essex, which is basically like a young offenders institute. Mm -hmm. They basically just couldn't manage her in these psychiatric units because she was so, so out of control. Whilst in custody during 1995, Sharon actually bragged to other inmates and a prison officer that she had killed Katie Ratcliffe two years previously. So just to kind of give you an idea, female on female murder is very, very unusual. It's not something that happens very regularly it does happen i'm not going to say it doesn't but it doesn't happen very regularly especially when you add in female strangers so a female attacking another female and them not knowing each other is very very unique that was just a randomized attack yeah yeah then add the fact in that the killer was 12 years old at the time of this attack and her victim was 18 it was an even more unique situation so who is this 14-year-old? What? How is this 14-year-old, 12 at the time, able to commit such a vicious murder that Profiles thought was a full-grown man? So I'll give you a little bit of background about who Sharon Carr is. Okay. She was born in Belize in 1979. She was born into abject poverty in a very, very modest home. She had a very poor family and a very, very dysfunctional childhood. Her dad was an abusive drunk and her mum had an explosive personality and temper. She wasn't she wasn't the most kind of nurturing mother. The family home, as you can imagine, was absolute chaos, but she survived it. She adapted into the child that she needed to be to get through it all and she she did everything she had to do. She didn't have the privilege of having parents that were there for her if she needed them. You know, she had to cope and learn through it and fight for every single thing that she had and she needed. Which I think we come across quite a lot, don't we? With with a lot of killers that I know that me and you have covered, we see this quite a lot that, you know, you they born into quite poor backgrounds or quite bad backgrounds with kind of abusive parents and stuff like this. And they kind of just learn to cope with it until they then turn like this. And it starts to get quite bad, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. So her childhood basically stayed like this, quite abusive and very dysfunctional, until her mum actually met an Englishman and they moved to Camberley in Surrey. So 
everything changed for them. They weren't in poverty anymore. They were in a better life. You know, you would think that they escaped poverty, that she would, everything would be okay now. You can't blame poverty for the way she acts, though, can you? No, but I think as well, when you've got an abusive, alcoholic father, you're getting away from them. You're getting out of that poverty-stricken area. You'd think that, okay, well, maybe things are going to get better now. Apart from her mum being obviously quite vicious and aggressive, yeah, you would hope that life would turn around for her. Hopefully. Well, things seemed to go kind of well at first, but Sharon started school. She did really, really well. Her teacher even said that she was charming and refreshing. She played basketball as well in school. As Sharon got older, though, her attitude started to become more and more aggressive. It seemed to be that she couldn't settle into her new way of life, that the way she was living in the UK. Her stepdad wasn't at all like, like what her biological dad was, Life was way more comfortable and it just didn't seem to settle with Sharon with how she was raised from a child. She was very much set on how she was used to growing up instead of this kind of, in air quotes, easier way of life. Yeah. She didn't have to fight for everything anymore. She had things given to her kind of, you know, she didn't have to worry about it anymore. She started smoking weed on and around the estate at about 11 years old. I am not going to stand here and sit here and say you're a bad person if you smoke weed i'm not i mean i think 11 is a bit early (laughs) to be starting but you know she started to get into that at that age unfortunately sharon's mum and stepdad actually broke up and this seemed to just cause more of a rift her mum as i said previously was super fiery and violent and when the stepdad actually ended the relationship her mum ended up pouring boiling fat over him in an attack. Like, boiling fat poured it all over him. It's nice of her, wasn't it? Fucking crazy, isn't it? Bunny boiler. Yeah. Well, he did press charges, and she was obviously arrested for this attack. But the worrying thing about it is... Oh, because he broke up with her? Yeah. I know, I know your eyes said it all there. (laughs) I wish this was videoed so you could see out his face then. It's madness that she just went completely off off her nut because she, he broke up with her. I told you, women are crazy. I think a lot of women are crazy. No, I'm <laughs> you. The worrying thing about this incident, though, was that Sharon was actually completely calm during this attack. She didn't even flinch when her mum did this. She was there, and she didn't she didn't do anything. Right. She was completely calm. So. I think this kind of might give you an idea of how common violence was to her. Yeah. How used to seeing it, so used to it. Yeah. yeah. Like scarily used to it. That it's just nothing to her. It's just like, oh yeah, my mum's just gonna violently attack my stepdad yeah. and oh, it's awful. So just to give you a bit of background in what she was used to kind of doing, the reason she's probably so used to it was because her mum and Sharon were actually quite into voodoo. Right. So I'm not going to profess to know anything about voodoo. I don't really know anything apart from the proper, like, commercialised stuff we hear about voodoo. Um, but I do know that it's quite a common thing in Belize. I do know that. I've managed to find that when I looked it up. Um, so the little I do know about it, I do know that sacrificial killings are a normal thing in voodoo magic. I do understand that about it. Okay. Um, so... That was quite a normal thing around her and her mum. Unfortunately, that would also lead on to the fact that pets would go missing in the area and neighbourhood cats would go missing in the area. So there was no proof that Sharon and her mum were responsible for these things or just Sharon was responsible, but it was very well known that it was Sharon. Okay. It was very much believed that it was her and everyone in the community believed this. The worrying thing is that there was like there was a cat found with his out his head, and like stuff like that, and like a dead dog found, and like really brutal, brutal like animal cruelty. So it just kind of gives you an idea of what she was into. Neighbors obviously were absolutely terrified of her. She had no parental control. Her mum had absolutely zero control of her. She just kind of roamed free and just intimidated and scared people. 
where she did. I mean, she had full-grown adults terrified of her. Mm. Full-grown adults. Could you imagine being scared of a 12-year-old? Imagine <laughs> that. Like, being terrified of a 12-year-old, thinking that she might kill you. That's scary shit. She would also, I mean, unfortunately, this is quite a common thing still, um, she would also carry weapons in her school bag. So we know that in big cities, that is a very big thing. Yeah, Knife course, crime yeah. is a massive issue in the UK. Probably a lot like um, gun crime is a big issue in other countries. Yeah. Knife crime is a big issue in the UK. Well, yeah, it's, you can get it so easily. Knives, can't you? Do you know yeah, I mean? they're so easily. Just go in the kitchen and just pick yeah. up anything, can't you? They have a lot of um, amnesty boxes and stuff around, though, don't they, that you can dump knives in? Yeah, but I'm not being funny. Every household has got knives. You could just go up easily. Any yeah, house, you know go to I mean? a kitchen drawer and get one. Yeah, and that's where yeah. you're gonna find it. Toolboxes, yeah. you know what I mean? You get blades and toolboxes. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Stanley knives. Yeah. You can get them in literally everything. Every, everything and everywhere. They're red. They're more readily accessible than guns, aren't they? But they're easy. I to think get, that's more they? scary. Yeah. yeah, I think that's more scary when it comes to and kind of going off on a tangent here, but. I think that's the scary thing about the UK. If you compare the UK crime, like those kind of vicious crimes, to other countries that have like guns and all these kind of things, I think that's the frightening thing that guns, I, I would assume, I don't know this, but I would assume that guns are harder to get. Well, you got to do background checks and things like that, didn't you? You can't yeah. pick them up. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, like, you know, you can't. Oh, yeah, there, you but, probably could, yeah, but, quite easily. But, but... background checks. But with, with a knife, no, you, you don't. You can just literally go in there, go in your local, local supermarket. Yeah. As long as you're over the age of 18 now. Yeah. That's it. Done. Yeah. No, I think that's more frightening. No but... one's going to question you are, no. though. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, you probably just get a set of knives because he yeah. needs knives. Or you could go and buy, like, a sword. You could go and buy like an ornamental sword or anything yeah. like that, and no one would batter an yeah. eyelid. It's 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 frightening, but that's the, unfortunately that's the what we still live in, yeah, and we still live in that. Ne- yeah. I don't think it's never ever going to change. No, I don't, I, I totally agree with you. No. So, um, the thing is, the these kind of things to her were socially acceptable, and I can understand the area that she was growing up in. She was growing up in the London area. It was that kind of <laughs> that kind of location. It was quite socially acceptable for people to be carrying knives and stuff like that at that age. This was just something that was their everyday life. The scary thing is, is that, as we've previously said, Sharon and Katie didn't even know each other. They'd never even met. They'd never seen each other on a street. Nothing. They literally never knew each other. So it was a complete stranger attack. As I said, the police investigation started and the officers pulled Sharon in for an initial interview to discuss the information that they'd been given. So after she'd admitted to all these people, obviously someone must have passed that information to the investigating officers and they thought, okay, well, we need to even look into this. Even if she's lying, we need to be looking into this. So as I said, they, they invited her in for an initial interview and right away... She admitted to the murder. Right. There was no hesitation. She admitted to it straight away. The only thing was was that she gave detectives three different stories every time. But in each of these stories, she was always the killer. That never changed. It was just different versions of the truth. Yeah. But she was always the killer. She was always the one that killed Katie. Oh, well, she admitted it. Yeah, she didn't well. Don't give her credit for too long. <laughs> Um, in an interview, she told them the information that wasn't released to the media. So she told them information that there's no way she could have physically known unless she was the one to commit the murder. She told them that she'd stolen a bracelet from Katie. No one, nobody was told that Joel Rue was stolen off the body. No one was ever told that. She described all the injuries that were inflicted to Katie's body that weren't even released to the media. And in the search of her family home, her diary was actually found. And inside the diary contained extremely incriminating evidence. So I'll I'll give you passages from her diary because I have the passages from her diary. Um, but it basically had a full confession of pretty much what she did to Katie. I won't read out all of it. I'll just read you out fragments of what she actually said. So they quoted... I'm a killer. Killing is my business and business is good. I was born to be a murderer. Killing for me is a mass turn on and it just makes me so high I never want to come down. 
Every night I see the devil in my dreams, sometimes even in my mirror, but I realise it was just me. In another quote, she stated, I bring the knife into her chest, her eyes are closing. She is pleading with me, so I bring the knife to her again and again. I don't want to hurt her, but I need to do violence to her. I need to overcome her beauty, her serenity, her security. There I see her face when she died. I know she feels her life being slowly drawn from her and I hear her gasp. I guess she was trying to breathe. The air stops in the back of her throat. I know all her life is breathing has worked, but it does not now and I am joyful. End quote. So th- those are some of the passages that were written in her diary and they were big scrolls. You can find them all over the internet. They're massive scrolls of it. There's loads and loads of them. Because she had, you got to remember, she had a couple of years to write in this diary. She's a crazy nut. Yeah. She showed no sympathy. Her diary showed it all. She didn't have any sympathy. It didn't sound like it. Yeah, it sounded... No, she didn't feel sorry for anything no. that she did. Um, after 27 hours of interview on May 1996, Sharon was charged with the murder of Katie. The police's theory is that after the club, a car pulled up outside at about 2am and Katie got in to get a lift home. It was likely that Sharon Carr was in the car, in the passenger seat, with two other people who were driving. Okay, one driving, one in the passenger seat. Okay. People that she knew. Okay, people that Sharon knew, not that Katie knew. Katie must have just accepted the offer of a lift home. Yeah. In custody, she was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which is essentially just a combination of schizophrenia and a mood disorder. Okay, so she was she was effectively affected with both of these. Okay. Okay, so a combination. As well, her ritualistic behaviour of the first murder, so her first murder being Katie, and then the second attack on Anne-Marie, it was ritualistic, which refers us back to her voodoo. It was very much ritualistic behaviour, which probably isn't helped by these these issues with her schizo's affective disorder. Two men were actually questioned in relation to the car that picked Katie up that night. But both men gave each other an alibi and they couldn't take it any further. And Sharon wouldn't say who they were or confirm who they were. So um, investigating officers decided that there was no, there wasn't enough evidence to basically take it to court and charge the two men. Right. So they couldn't take it any further. So that, again, was a non-starter. They couldn't take it anywhere after that. It was just, it was dead in the water, essentially. As I said, don't give her too much credit mm-hmm. before... Two months later, while still in custody for the murder, she retracted her confession. How come? She just retracted it. I'm assuming on information or guidance from her solicitor. Right. I'm assuming most of the time they just tell them to retract it because you then you haven't got the criminal basically sitting there going, yes, I did it. It's much easier when they're admitting it. The other thing is, is that you then have to be put through, you have to put the family through a trial and all this other shit. Yeah. And then you have to, the other worrying thing is, and the upsetting thing is, is that they have to then put the family through reliving everything that happened to Katie in front of her family being there in the court when she could have just gone, no, accept it, and moved on. She'd she'd get the same result, essentially. Yeah. I mean, there's no chance, come on, there's no chance she's going to be found not guilty. Come on, the woman's admitted, well, girls admitted it in her diary. Blame somebody else, can't she? Yeah, I mean, I don't think at any point she blamed anybody else. So she was just like, no, nah, I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what these diaries entries are. <laughs> Crazy. To be honest, it didn't really matter if she retracted it. Right. It made no difference. They had enough evidence that she was, in fact, the killer with the confession, the information that she had about the attack. They had enough. On March 1997, the trial would start. At that time, she was 17 years old. Trial started at Winchester Crown Court. She tried to come off as innocent. She dressed very smartly in a white top and a very and a cross showing a gold cross. Like she's some religious 17-year-old girl that is like fucking whiter than white. <laughs> in the trial, the jury was shown the entries from her diary. 
I mean, this was absolutely traumatizing to the people that were in the court. You know, they saw everything that she put. And some of them are horrific. Some of the things that she wrote in that diary are horrific. Yeah. She drew pictures of knives and the, the aspects I gave you was just little fractions of what she wrote. There's hundreds and hundreds of passages that she wrote in there. After a four-week trial, the jury heard all the facts. They saw all the facts of the confession, the diary entries, the fact that she, that she was going to be the only person who was responsible for this murder. They were 100% certain on that information. There was nobody else that was going to be guilty of this murder apart from Sharon Carr. There was no one else that was responsible for it. Seven men and five women made a unanimous decision to define her as guilty of murder. She was then sentenced to 14 years in custody, but Judge Mr Justice Scott Baker recommended that she be detained indefinitely, stating that, quote, it is clear in your words that killing turns you on and you are a very, very dangerous young woman, end quote. Katie's previous boss, Alison Moore, who was her boss at the hairdressers that she worked at, um, she said, quote, Katie wasn't a member of staff. She was part of our family. This terrible event deprived Kate of her, of her future, just as she was beginning to blossom into a young hairdresser. To this day, we still talk about her and think of her and remember the fun and happy times we had and smile and laugh together, end quote. In the documentary that I watched, um, nobody really wanted to speak on it. It was only her ex-boss that would. Right. Nobody else in the town or anything would even speak about it. Nobody would be interviewed. Um, and what they're basically putting it down to is that they're all still so traumatised by what happened. Because it's a small community. It's not a big, massive community. They're all so kind of shocked by what this child literal child she was 12 she wasn't even a teenager yet what she did and i think it just shocks you doesn't it when you know that you hear about these things happening but you don't think that it can ever happen in your community you just don't know do you what people are fucking thinking no you don't you genuinely don't i mean like i said you know that it happens but there's a difference between it happening and you it happening in your community in your area kind of thing it's like if it happened on our street You'd be like, what the hell? Or if it happened within mm-hmm. a mile of us, you'd be like, well, it did happen. Yeah. That that murder with that guy up the road. Well, in Keelham. Shooting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it did happen. And that yeah. was terrifying, yeah. wasn't it? It was horrific. Um, Carr was actually categorised as a high-level person, um, high-level violent person whilst in detention. And it was stated that the public can't be safe with her while she's out of custody at any age so it didn't matter what age she was they stated that she was never going to be safe around the general public she was actually officially the youngest convicted uk murderer so she was very close i know we've um covered mary bell yeah so i think there was only months between them in age because she was also 12 yeah um so i think there was only a matter of months so she is if you type into google she is officially the uk's youngest convicted murderer right as i said no locals want anything to do with this this it scarred the community um the last 26 years she's not been she's not done her sentence quietly she has caused nothing but hassle for the last 26 years to everyone and anyone around her pretty much um she was first sent to HMP Holloway in June 1998 she was transferred to Broadmoor Hospital so you can't classify Broadmoor as a prison because it is classified as a hospital it's a treatment center it's a nurse no, we're not going to call it a nut house. <laughs> it's a secure treatment centre. It's a ch- secure hospital. Okay, but they I, have different... <laughs> they have different um, wings for different people, depending on what they're classified as. What level you're at, yeah? It depends what level you're at and what, what, what section. Kind of, what kind of nutty you're at, yeah? <laughs> it depends what section in the hospital you are, depending on what you've done and how how basically secure you have to be there's people that aren't violent that are in this hospital it just depends so in broadmoor Carr actually met 25 year old robbie lane during her stay in broadmoor and he was actually incarcerated for killing his mum 
and he'd stabbed and beat her to death because he was jealous of her relationship with her sister. Yeah. Some weird people out there, isn't Some it? very weird people, yeah. yeah. They apparently fell in love and they enjoyed planned exercise together and after nine months, he popped the question. Yeah. Even killers need love. <laughs> well, there's someone out there for everyone, isn't there, as they say? <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't, it didn't end... It didn't end well. Can I just say? She kill him? No, 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 no. It didn't end up in the the fairy tale like oh, you would okay. you would hope that she apparently deserves. Um, they began to kind of plan their nuptials together, buying wedding bands from Argos, um, and they had staff collect them on their behalf. Um, strangely, by chance, how do they earn money? Uh, how do they get money? I don't. Do you know what? I don't know how these people get money. When they're in, like, essentially, are they entitled to benefits? Well, when you're in the they can't work. Oh, no, when they're in prison or anything like that, are they entitled they to any kind of benefit? How do they get benefits? Well, you can claim it. Oh, well, they can't work. So how do you claim it? Have they got like the access to computers and telephones yes. and like? Yes, they do. Exactly how do they, that. How do they claim benefits? They have you... like Netflix. One minute. What do you do at the moment? I'm in the crack house. I'm in, I'm in prison, <laughs> you mean? I'm in prison. Yeah. Crack house, I'm in prison. But you said it's not prison. Hospital, I'm hospitalised. Yeah, I'm to, hospitalised, yeah. I want yeah. to claim benefits. Yeah. Everyone's got to live. When's your last job? I ain't had one. I've been incarcerated for how many years? Yeah. I want the government to pay my way. Well, yeah, they're not really paying their are way. Are you though, looking are for what? No, I just told you I'm in the crack house. I'm in prison. <laughs> It's not in prison, it's an hospital, you just said. Hosp- she's in a secure unit. Yeah, she's, in car- sh- yeah, she's, in, she's incarcerated. So she's in a hospital, you said she's not in prison. She's in, in, it's a different kind of hospital. It's not a normal type of hospital. Is she locked up? Or yes. Do, or does she have free room? No, she doesn't have free room. What, the hospital? Yes. No, you don't. I, I've what I've watched documentaries on Broadmoor Hospital, um, and you don't. I don't know how You she don't get that. We actually covered a case uh, a little while ago, and... Th- they they went into Broadmoor Hospital and they actually killed somebody. Really? Yeah, yeah. We co- we covered it. It was ages ago. It was probably like fifteen episodes ago. It was a while ago. Funnily enough, though, um, strangely by chance, before they got married, um, they were actually read a news article that was actually documenting their upcoming wedding plans, and in it actually gave details of both of their murders. <laughs> they both read this this thing in the newspaper and they were so disgusted by each other's crimes that they stormed out of the room a male nurse at the facility who asked not to be named in the source that i've read said quote they won't even talk to each other now it's quite amazing that two convicted murderers who fell in love behind bars could be revolted by one another the wedding plans were thrown in the bin after sharon read that lane had gouged his mother's eyes out and it seems Lane was pretty disgusted by the sadistic murder carried out by his bride-to-be. The rings which staff had collected from Argos for them have now been sent back. End quote. <laughs> so they didn't get married. So they didn't get to the end of the rainbow and all smiles and love didn't happen for them. Um, after this, she was moved to Rampton Secure Hospital, which is another hospital that I know we've spoken about with another one of our cases. She was sent there in 2007. She stayed there until February 2015 when she had to be transferred to HMP Bronzefield because she posed too much of a risk to other patients and staff at the other facilities. They stated that she no longer required hospital treatment and that no effective treatment could be given to her. So they essentially just wrote her off and just said, we can't treat her. In 2015, she was classed as a restricted prisoner, which is basically equivalent to a class A prisoner in male prisons. And I've looked this up, what the difference is, is because all I could see was class A prisoners. So class A prisoners is what they class as male prisoners. Female prisoners have like, um, they just have restricted prisoner status. They have different statuses. It's class different. Right. But restricted prisoner is equivalent to a class A in a male prison, which is the highest you can go in prison. You can't get any more. And then it goes down 
down for instance and like the the bottom one is like an open prism okay. where you can come and go for the day and stuff like that so go for a day ain't literally you can come and go day in a museum you know oh, but we've, go for a day. Yeah, we've yeah. discussed that me and you've discussed about open prisons oh, before and i know how you feel about open prisons I'm an open prison it's fucking hell. basically though what the class a prisoner essentially means according to the hm prison service which is where i got this information was that those who escape would be highly dangerous to the public or national security, thus necessitizing maximum security conditions. So completely maximum security, too much of a risk to anybody else. In 2018, Carr was transferred to HMP Low Newton, where she was involved in another violent attack on a fellow prisoner, forcing them to move her back to HMP Bronzefield just eight months later. Her, she's continued to attempt to go down legal routes to be get downgraded as a prisoner, but the High Court is saying that's not enough progression has been made, not enough evidence to show that she's making changes, right. and especially with her continued violent outbursts, self-harm incidents, paranoid thoughts, and the fact that she admitted that she was having thoughts of murdering a fellow inmate. So that's where she pretty much is. Um, she's still trying she keeps going i read this massive bloody document huge huge document about all these things that she's kind of going through at the moment and the 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 hoops she's essentially trying to get her solicitor to jump through for her to try and get her downgraded a prisoner it doesn't seem like she's trying to get out it seems like she's trying to just get downgraded and i think that's what she's trying to do yeah i don't think she's trying to get out but she served her time. She's officially served her 14 years. Right. She served that a long time ago. That was like 26 years ago. So she served 12 years more than what her sentence even was. So why can't they release her? Because she's too unsafe. Right. She's continued to be violent and continued to have these thoughts and self-harm. And these said that she's going to kill a fellow inmate and all these other things and all these assaults mm. on people. This is showing the prison service that she's not safe to be released out into the public. She wouldn't be safe if she was to go out on the street. She'd kill another person. Yeah. It's likely. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a forensic psychologist. I'm not a criminal psychologist. But I think most people could say that she would probably not be safe out with a vulnerable person or anybody, essentially. So where this kind of ends us on today's case, well, this week's case is do you think that she could be rehabilitated? I'm asking all you guys and I'm asking Atty as well. Do you think it's possible for her to be released and be safe with the public? Well, no, I don't think she would. No? No. So in a YouGov poll posted in 2020, just a couple of years ago, 36% of the people that were asked felt that a murderer that had only killed one person, remember she only killed one person, could, and, and attempted to fucking yeah, kill the other one. But someone that only killed one person, convicted of killing one person, could be rehabilitated. 36% of the people that were asked said they could be rehabilitated. And my question, like you just said, my question is, do you think, do you think there could be restrictions placed on her? She has officially done her sentence. I understand that. She's being but held. What restrictions are you gonna take on her? Exactly that. Exactly that. Is someone going to watch her 24-7? Yeah. Is she going to get her own place and someone's going to watch her 24-7? Yep. Do you know what I mean? We've seen how that goes it, it with other people. It takes her to go, oh, yes, they, they've released me. I've done my time. Shit, I've dropped a pen. <laughs> um, she go out. She just turned on by it. She yeah. said it. We said that at the beginning. So why don't she stab somebody else? Yeah. Why don't that 36% of people who said, yeah, she if one of their They come and live with her, yeah. You know what I mean? If, yeah. one of, if one of their family members yeah. or friends or someone they, they yeah. know, I guarantee they'll be changing. I guarantee they'll be changing their mind very quickly. Yeah, you know what I mean, I think if she would have changed, she would have changed in the what the fourteen years and plus the additional twelve that she did on top. Yeah, she would have wanted to change by then. She would totally agree. She would have seen seen what she'd done was wrong. Yeah, um, and try to make him not make amends because it's not a lot you can do after what she's done now. But no. like try and change her life, yeah. life around. Like some people do, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they yeah. Commit it happens. They're like, oh shit, yeah. But she's still trying to do it through the 14, yeah. well, 14 plus years, actually. She was saying she wants to kill or she's thinking about killing her. Recently. Her um, cellmates or whatever. Yeah. 
and things like that, that's 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 not stable. No, it's not stable. Do you know what I mean? Totally agree with um, you. Yeah. What I would bring into it and what I would ask people's kind of opinions on as well is that do you think that her spending so much time at a very young age, so she was a very young, she was 14 when she started going into the system, that is such an influential time in a teenager's life. And around that, I mean, I know she was violent in herself, but being in that environment, that is not the best environment for someone to be growing up in either. So okay. has even more damage been caused no, by this that's irreparable and it cannot be fixed no matter what. She's now, she's, how do I say it? She's, she spent so much time behind bars that she wouldn't know how to live outside in a I normal life. I understand that, but she did it, her first crime when she was 12. Yeah. So what is she blaming that on? You can't blame when she got caught. When did she get caught? 14. 14. You can't say, oh, 14 onwards. Well, yeah, you know. 14. Yeah, 14 onwards. 14, 15, she yeah. She spent time going from hospitals, nut houses, whatever you want to call them. Psychiatric units. Yeah. Let's be politically correct. <laughs> yeah, nut house. Um, Psychiatric units. And, and blaming that. Do you know yeah. I, You know, I think she was, I think she was already gone. At, yeah. At, I believe, yeah. At, at a young age. You know, I think so much damage was done in her childhood. But then you blame that... her childhood. We all, you know, some of us people, some people have a rough childhood. Some people have a really good childhood. Look yeah. at the cu- cases we've covered. People have really good childhood, good family, come from a nice background, yeah. and they turn into a fucking crazy nut. So you, <laughs> yeah, one, so, one analogy so... I will put to this is Ted Bundy had a generic normal upbringing, generic generic or normal upbringing apart from the fact that he was adopted right so that so, was the only thing that right. wasn't so what do you blame then so what so what's he got to blame this is where well he's dead now so he was no, executed but, <laughs> no but do you know what i mean like it's, it's... i don't think it'd be mad if you have a a reasonable good upbringing with money or whatever yeah uh or you have a shit upbringing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just don't think you can blame it. I just think if you... Do you think it's case-to-case basis, or...? When someone gets raped, did you bring her up? Do you bring her upbringing? What do you mean? Well, a person rapes another person. Yeah. Yeah. It don't mean they got raped when they were younger, or anything. Yeah, So, yeah. Why, so why did that person rape another person? I don't know. I think... To be honest with you, I think it's too much of a complex... I think it's too much of a complex thing to even get into because there's so many different aspects that can come into it with head traumas. I mean, I've I've heard a lot of that wrestler, actually. I can't remember his name now, but that really famous WWE wrestler that murdered his wife. I think it's either his wife or his ex-wife and his what? child. And he killed them both and then committed suicide. Yeah. They... They did all the post-mortem and everything on him, and it showed huge brain injuries, like huge, huge brain injuries. That was nothing to do with his childhood. That was huge brain injuries that caused such an issue in his head. Your brain has so much control over things that you do. If you have a severe enough head injury, that can cause you, if that affects the areas that affect decision-making and all those other things, that is another aspect that, can affect it and again i'm not a doctor i'm not going to profess to know much about that i'm not you know if if you want to go and you can have a look at it all up because there's so much information on it and studies on it but it shows that it doesn't have to necessarily be something that can be traumatic from your childhood it can be an injury that you sustained at some point in your life are you trying to justify it no no i'm not no i'm not murder people no i'm not justifying it in the slightest i think that if if somebody commits a crime they should be punished for it and they should face the full extent of the law and they should they should receive whatever punishment is given to Sometimes them. Sometimes the law don't always work, though, does it? The law is not faultless, no. Unfortunately not. And we've seen lots of cases out there that people are convicted wrongly. There's lots recently that have just come up in the news. It's, a lot of it is in the US of people that have been released after like 15, 20, 25 years in prison because they've been wrongly convicted. And then the real person <laughs> was found. And they're like, oh, yeah, here's 20 million to basically just shut up and leave and not say anything more about it. It happens a lot. It's, 
least you got compensated for it. At least, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think? Do you think that she can be rehabilitated? Would you want her out on the streets? Or would you not? Do you think the best place for her is to spend the rest of her life in a secure unit where she can't hurt anybody else? Nut house. <laughs> Let us know your opinions on this week's case. I know where I stand with it. Atty has definitely let his opinion <laughs> know on this case. So thank you. Yes, as usual. Yeah. He doesn't tend to speak during it. Atty's one of those people that likes to gain all of his information, don't you? And then you'll have your yeah, opinion at the end. That's what it's all about. I know. Do you know what I mean? You're yeah. telling me, I'll, you know, I will give you my opinions. And If you've ever wondered why Atty doesn't speak much when I'm presenting the case to him, this is why, because Atty is one of those people that likes to compile all of the information he's been given to give, not an educated, but a full view of an opinion, so he's you educated. know all the facts. Yeah. Well, some of it's educated, some might be dumb as hell, but... <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is, you know. But some, you know, I'm just speaking. My as mind. truthfully as you like yeah. to, yeah. yeah. And it's, um, I don't agree with everything you say. No, I know you don't. Uh, no, and he makes that known as well. <laughs> he doesn't just agree with me because we're married. He definitely lets me know his opinion all yeah. the time. Well, yeah, because some of the things I just, I, I just don't agree with, and I don't agree with the law system. No, you know, but some of it's not always right. No, no. 100%. And I just don't... The walk-in, walk-out fucking system, that's just... Oh, stupid. open prisons. That's just stupid. Stupid yeah. as hell, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's try... Open prisons are essentially to try and ready people for the outside world to kind of integrate them back into society. That's what it's meant to do. The problem is it's not a faultless system like anything's not a faultless system. There's going to be people that fall through the cracks. Like anything, I suppose. No, yeah, I suppose so. So, anything else to add, Atty? No, I think I've said everything I've got to say. Hopefully that gives you an explanation, guys, on why he doesn't speak much. Because I imagine why people are probably asking why he he doesn't tend to interact too much during the, I'm presenting the case to him. He likes to get all of his facts through and then he will, he'll hit you with it at the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all for listening this week. We really, really appreciate you guys. And we have actually got a subscriber episode from last month that went up last week. We have. So that's up if you guys want an extra episode out there. Um, the the price for the subscriber only episode is, is I think it's quite a low price um, for the episode. So you get one monthly episode guaranteed and whatever we else sprinkle in there if I do any bonus cases throughout the month. Um, so just want to remind you guys that that facility is out there. It's only on Spotify. It's not on anything else. If we get enough interest, we might put it onto Apple Podcasts as well, maybe, if we get enough interest in it. Um, but thank you all for listening. We will post the pictures onto our Instagram and our Facebook as usual. And as usual, thank you for listening, and we will catch you guys in a few weeks' time. Thank you. Cheers, bye. Guys, bye-bye.